0: Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we are going to look together at verses 1 to 7 together this morning of this book. Historically, monks have sought closeness to God through a lifestyle of renunciation and denial. Uh, We sometimes refer to that as asceticism. And one of the many things that monks renounced over the years in seeking closeness to God uh, was actually sexual relations. In fact, many monks would take three specific vows. As um, monasticism developed over the years, it started uh, often on the individual level of people going out and, and living almost uh, as a hermit of sorts. And then it kind of developed into a communal way of life. But vows, or monks eventually started taking vows. Uh, Three in particular, and the first was referred to as the vow of chastity, uh, or basically celibacy, that they were vowing that they would live a life of no sex. Uh, And then the two other vows, the vow of poverty and the vow of obedience. And so i want to start by asking you a question. What do you think? Is there some kind of correlation between celibacy, celibacy, abstaining from sex, and a higher spiritual life? Do those things necessarily go together? Uh, You think about someone who is single, and maybe that's you. Are you more spiritual if you abstain from sexual activity? Or is sex something that's not necessarily moral? Uh, If you're married, are you more spiritual if you abstain from having sex with your spouse? In other words, um, if you or your spouse needed, desired, or actually had sex less together, would that somehow represent a higher degree of spirituality? Do abstinence and a greater degree of spirituality go together? Well, apparently the Corinthians had some opinions on this. And whether you realize it or not, I bet that you do too. And so whatever your opinions and practices are, I think the question becomes, are they right? Are they biblical? Sometimes Christians have very flawed views of the interplay between sex and spirituality. In fact, I think that's really quite common. First corinthians seven one to seven is meant to help and if if you look at this first verse, Paul begins with these words. he says "Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter asking him. Uh, Well, we don't exactly know. It seems that they were either asking him questions or maybe they were just stating their opinions uh, to the apostle. And having received that letter, Paul is now addressing the things that they brought up one by one. And he's going to use this this language that we see in chapter 7, verse 1 again and again. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul is addressing these. And uh, as I mentioned, the difficulty is that we don't have the Corinthians letter. So what that means is that you and I have answers, but we don't have the questions. We don't know exactly what it is that the Corinthians were stating. It's like we're hearing one side of the phone conversation. And So what that does is it leaves us speculating somewhat. What was going on in Corinth with the Corinthians? But it would seem that some of the Corinthians were actually arguing that celibacy within marriage was the spiritual way. That, that somehow represented godliness or a higher level of spirituality. As we work through this letter, you just realize the Corinthians had all kinds of different thoughts and things that Paul was trying to one by one correct. And as Paul addresses this issue with the Corinthians, it becomes clear that God really expects you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy. Let's look at this passage. I want to read chapter 7, 1-7 to seven, as we begin. Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. God has some expectations of you regarding sexual intimacy, and we want to look at five expectations that God has of you together this morning. Uh, First, God expects, number one, that you abstain from sexual intimacy outside of marriage. That's what verse one is talking about. Look at this verse again. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, depending on what translation you're holding, you may notice that the second half of that verse is in quotation marks, and that is because it is thought that Paul is quoting something that the Corinthians said in their letter or they implied or that that they that they thought or maybe they were asking about it in their letter to Paul. It's also possible that what's in quotation marks there may have been something that Paul said. Uh, frankly, I'm just not sure that we know who was saying it. But either way, whatever that statement meant, and whoever it came from, it seems like it's a true statement that the Corinthians were misapplying. It's a true statement misapplied. And I think that becomes pretty clear as verse 2 starts with the word, but. Paul starts uh, with this sentence, it, it is good. Like, like his thought and said, but this needs qualified. So Paul is addressing in verse 1 the matter of celibacy when he says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, Some translations use the the euphemism there to uh, touch a woman. Uh, That is definitely a reference to sex. Uh, Paul is not saying uh, that. In other words, that's not the verse you want to use as a parent to tell your kids you should never, ever touch anyone of the opposite sex. It's a a euphemism for sex. And Paul is affirming that sexual abstinence is good. If you are not married, you should not be engaging in sex. And to do that would be sinful. Sexual immorality is not an option for your sexual fulfillment. And as we'll see in the next verse, uh, God very much reserves sex for the marriage relationship. So celibacy is a good thing, Paul says. And I think that's so important to remember in a world that I think if we're honest, when we think of our world, it tends to define people by actually their sexual activity and what they do sexually. And yet that's not how God defines you at all. Nor is that where your identity comes from. And the last thing you want to do is let the world tell you otherwise. According to God, sex outside of marriage is not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for your sexual partner or partners, uh, though it may seem good. God says that it's not. It's neither morally good or is it actually good for you. Now, while sexual abstinence is good, I think we could also say as we start to look into verse 2 that sexual abstinence is its also dangerous. In verse 2, Paul mentions what he calls the temptation to sexual immorality. And as we'll see in uh, kind of at the end of this passage, unless you have the what Paul calls the, the gift of celibacy, that temptation is probably going to be there and it's probably going to be significant and intense and strong. And you need God's help, as we saw in chapter 6, verse 18, to flee sexual immorality. And you know what? I think one of the really amazing things is that God will give you that grace. God will give you that help. Just turn over to chapter 10 really quick of this book and look with me. At chapter 13, chapter 10, verse 13, we read that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You you don't have this, uh, your own little set of unique temptations that nobody else is facing. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then it says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. God gives his grace. God gives his help to live a life of purity. Because God expects you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy, that means that you must abstain from sexual intimacy outside of marriage. God wants you to flee sexual immorality. And if you're sitting here and you are engaged in some kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship with your husband or with your wife, that is wrong and that is sinful. And God expects that to stop and for that to be repented of. God has a second expectation of you sexually. God expects, number two, that for you to live in sexual intimacy with your spouse in verse 1, Paul affirmed, yes, celibacy is a good thing. But he starts verse 2 with the word, but. It's good. Yeah, sexual, or sexual celibacy, that's good. But not in your marriage. Apparently, some of the Corinthians were taking the statement on celibacy at the end of verse 1. And as I mentioned, it was, it was entering into their marriage. And somehow it would seem that many of them thought that that was actually spiritual or godly or I don't know. Look at the second half of verse 1 and there into verse 2. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What exactly is God commanding there in verse 2? He is commanding something. What is it exactly that he's commanding? What he says in verse 2, it's an imperative, it's a command, and that's very clear in the original language. There's a couple of uh, interpretational options here. Option number one, which would be referred to as the traditional view, would go something like this. Uh, Paul is addressing the unmarried as he gets there into verse 2. And what he's basically said is that celibacy is an amazing, amazing thing. But if you don't think that God has given you that gift and you do actually feel sexual urges, then you should get married. Because God designed the sexual relationship for marriage. And then as we would get into verses 6 and 7 in this view, Paul would basically be clarifying, listen, I'm not commanding that you just need to go out and get married. That's more of a, you know what, if if those sexual desires are there, that's the place to fulfill fulfill it. And so that becomes the recommendation. It's not necessarily a command that you just have to go get married. That traditional interpretation I actually think is very good. However, it's not without some difficulties. And I think that there is a second interpretational option uh, that is probably to be preferred as we look at verse 2. Option number 2 would be that Paul is actually addressing the married. And he's recognizing that celibacy is a good thing. It's a great thing. It's God's plan outside outside of marriage but it's wrong within marriage. And therefore, Paul is actually commanding couples in verse two to, uh, to use his language to have each other sexually. Have in verse two would be used as a euphemism for sexual relations, just like it is. If you look back at chapter five, verse one, where we, we read about it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. What was it? A man has his father's wife. Exact same language, the language of having. So what is God commanding in this verse? Well, God commands sexual intimacy in marriage. Assuming that both partners are physically capable, sex is not optional within marriage. When you get married, you're, you're not allowed to have sex. You're required to have sex. And if you are a married man, God would then be commanding you, you need to have your wife. And if you are a married woman, God would be commanding you, you need to have your husband. On the one hand, uh, the fact that this is a command kind of of makes you chuckle a little bit. It reminds me of a dad telling his children, hey, guess what? We're going to take you to the West End water park this weekend. And all the kids are excited, and everybody piles into the vehicle. And the kids are literally bouncing up and down in their seats, literally about to bounce out of the car with excitement that they're going to spend this whole day at the West End Water Park. And dad pipes up in his stern voice. Maybe he looks in the rearview mirror and speaks, as uh, fathers tend to do sometimes, with a bit of sternness. And he says, All right, everybody calm down back there and listen up. Are you listening to me? And getting everybody's attention. The kids quiet down. Uh, Oh, dad is serious. And dad says, I've got one rule for today. There's one expectation and it's really important. And I want you to make sure that you're listening. Is everybody listening? Okay. Here it is. Have fun. Go to the water park and have. That is the rule. You go have a blast at the water park and the kids laughed. They thought dad was all serious and they realized dad was just joking, telling them to go have a great time. You realize that God is actually commanding marital enjoyment? Does, Does that not make you chuckle a little bit that God would actually command that, that he's not some kind of brood sitting up in the heavens prohibiting all fun? You're a Christian, you can't do that. On the other hand one might see how this command could be difficult at times, particularly when a husband and a wife aren't really feeling that close or maybe there's there's conflict or there's sin in the marriage and maybe it's just easier not to go there. God commands sexual intimacy within marriage and God uses sexual intimacy within marriage right away in verse two Paul brings up. That where there's abstinence, there's typically temptation. Verse 2 begins, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, Paul is offering one reason for God's command that married couples should have sex. And it's by no means the only reason, but it is definitely a reason. And contrary to what some of the Corinthians may have thought, and contrary to what you might think, abstaining from sexual relations with your spouse isn't the pathway to higher spirituality, do you know what it might just be? It might just be the pathway to immorality. God uses sexual intimacy within marriage to protect against immorality. And God also, we might say, restricts sexual intimacy to marriage. According to verse 2, there is one place where celibacy is not good, and that is marriage. And God sets, sets the terms here. On marriage, it's God's definition of marriage. We see in verse 2 that uh, he's talking about monogamous marriage. Polygamy is when someone has many wives. Monogamy is you have one wife, one spouse. We, We see the language of his own and her own. And we see as well that he's referring to heterosexual marriage. He uses the language of a wife and a husband, of a man and a woman. God defines those terms. And it starts to become clear that that sex is this package deal. It's not something that you just go do to have some fun. It happens within a context. With a lot of strings attached. And it's it's wonderful by God's design. Because God expects you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy. You must live in sexual intimacy with your spouse. Question for you. Have you decided not to have sex with your spouse? Or have you decided to withhold sex from your spouse? And do you realize that that to do that is sinful? And there's there's not some kind of spiritual excuse for it. And on the flip side of that, are you having sex outside of marriage? That is also sinful and inappropriate. Now, before we go to verses 3 and 4, I think just a, a warning of sorts is in order Paul is going to talk about the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife in a way uh, that honestly, it it may not sit very well with you. And in fact, it may even make you feel vulnerable or in some way, um, I don't know, maybe even unsafe. And I would encourage you this way don't let your fear of how this text might be misappropriated or misapplied keep you from taking it at face value. Our job is not to smooth out the text in order to avoid some potential misapplication or misunderstanding of it. Rather, what we need to do is we just need to let God speak exactly as God chooses to speak. And then we need to be careful not to twist or misapply what he said. So with that, we come to a third expectation. And I've worded this in a way uh, that may not initially sit quite right, but I think it is very true to the text itself. Expectation number three, God expects you to give your spouse the sexual intimacy that you owe them. Look at verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. I want to give you actually just a rough literal translation of the Greek text would be something like this. The husband must give, uh, in fact, we could even translate there pay. The husband must give to the wife that which is owed. And that word for owed there could be the debt, the duty, the obligation, and vice versa. Paul is, I mean, I don't know how his language strikes you there, but Paul is actually using business terms from the realm of commerce to talk about a husband and wife's sexual relationship. They go, wow, how romantic. (laughs) You know, like, Paul, you've really just got away with words. He's talking about paying your debt or your obligation. He's saying that you're obligated. Good Bible students compare Scripture with Scripture. And I would very much caution you from reading this verse without thinking of it, in the terms of the whole of Scripture and what God says elsewhere on this subject. I don't think you want to read this verse without thinking about sex according to Song of Solomon. And Solomon, chapter after chapter after chapter, talking about the delights of the sexual relationship with his wife and God's design and the relationship itself, I don't think you want to look at this verse without thinking about marriage being a covenant of companionship as Malachi talks about, that that we're companions. Sex and marriage is so much more than duty and obligation. But I think we need to be clear that it's actually not less than that. It is not primarily a duty, but it is indeed a duty. According to verse 3, loving sexual intimacy is actually a debt that you owe. You owe your spouse the loving gift of sexual intimacy. And according to verse 3, your spouse actually has a right to receive that from you. Loving sexual intimacy is a debt that you must pay. Give what you owe to your spouse. Sexual intimacy is is not something that you can withhold. Marriage is a covenant and covenants come with duties. Perhaps I could use an illustration from the realm of commerce since that's the, the type of language that Paul is actually using. Many of you have mortgages or some kind of rental agreement. When you took out your mortgage, when you do that, you've actually entered into an agreement. We might even call it a covenant with the bank. And you've agreed that month after month on a certain date that you will pay what you owe. Which of you would think that you didn't have to or didn't need to pay your mortgage? I mean, really? With your mortgage, you understand... You know what? It doesn't matter this month if I feel like paying it or not. It it just doesn't. And it doesn't matter how tight things have been for us financially this month. We've got to pay it. You've obligated yourself to that financially. Yes, you have an obligation, but also when you think about that, yeah, you've got that obligation, but do you know what else you've got? The house. There's a reason you entered into that hole. Contract because you thought, this is is a wonderful thing. And similar, which of you would think of not giving to your spouse what is rightfully theirs? And with the covenant, you get to enjoy every other aspect of the marriage relationship. Every other benefit of marriage too. Because God expects you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy. You must give your spouse the sexual intimacy that you owe them. Married couples, we might say, are sexually indebted to each other. Um, You need to view, I think a lot of this comes down to how you view and think of things. You need to view and treat sex in your marriage as a debt as opposed to something else. As opposed to something that's granted as a favor. As opposed to some kind of reward. As opposed to some kind of carrot. Also, I'd say this. We sometimes talk about how sex doesn't start in the bedroom. And how it's often the result or byproduct of, of a really healthy marriage. In other words, it's not just this, isola- this act that happens in isolation outside of the rest of the marriage. We talk about it being like a thermometer on the rest of your marriage. And, and really, I think we'd all say, who wouldn't say that's true? Like that, that reality reality, that dynamic, that is so true. And while it's true, I think that you have to be careful not to let that negate this whole debt idea. It's a debt, really, whether you feel close or not um, in all those ways. And I think if, if you think of it just in terms, well, you know what, if everything else isn't really going just amazing in our marriage, then this is no longer important. Well, that's not what God says. If sex becomes viewed as a favor, a reward, or a carrot. Or the thermometer um, that, you know, it's based on everything else in your marriage. All that has to be going good unless, unless this can happen. All those ideas, what they essentially become is actually quite self-focused. And, and, and what are my feelings in this marriage? And What are my desires? And if those aren't being met, then this is withheld. Maybe you struggle and find verse 3 uh, somewhat hard to, to swallow. God has a fourth expectation God expects you to recognize that you don't have authority over your body. Look at verse 4. It says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And then he flips it around, which would have been shocking in the ancient world. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. You don't have authority to do with your body whatever it is that you want. What does that mean? What does that imply? Well, it means that you don't have the right or authority to give your body to any other person than your spouse. And by the way there, I didn't say future spouse. You don't have the right or authority to give your body to anybody but your spouse. And by the way, this goes beyond sexual intercourse. Do you know what this means? It means that, that your eyes belong to your spouse. It means what you look at, that all matters. It means that your brain and your thoughts belong to your spouse. It also means that you don't have the right or authority to withhold your body from your spouse. It's, it's theirs actually by right to have and enjoy. It means that if your spouse is requesting sexual intimacy, you shouldn't be thinking, well, what about my rights? Or you're being selfish to expect this of me, or ask this of me. Your body and sexual intimacy belong to your spouse, not selfishly, God says, but but rightfully. And I think there's also very much a flip side of of, of that that very much needs brought up. If your spouse's body belongs to you, and as we saw in chapter 6, ultimately to the Lord then you should treat your spouse's body the exact same way that you would want yours to be treated, with love, dignity, respect, and care. And that would mean that a loving spouse is going to be sensitive to their spouse's times of sickness and fatigue and and pregnancy and medical conditions and all the other things that go along with life. I don't think we want to forget verses like Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. uh, Philippians 2, where we're given this example of Jesus and admonished to live the same way. And in verses 3 and 4, we read this, In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. That's what Jesus is like. And that's what every spouse should be like in their marriage. Just to be clear, God leaves absolutely no room for abuse or selfishly taking advantage of your spouse. The emphasis of this verse is not claiming the sex that is rightfully yours. The emphasis of this verse is the selfless and sacrificial giving of yourself sexually to your spouse. It's not you owe me. It's I I owe you. To use this passage as some kind of club to claim what's yours is sinful and selfish and it's wrong. And if you're doing that, it needs to stop. That is not pleasing to the Lord. Because God expects you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy, he must recognize that you don't have authority over your body. As a general rule, saying no to your spouse is, is not appropriate. And that does not mean that conversations can't be had or that intimacy couldn't be prolonged or or postponed due to sickness uh, and other things. I mean, in any healthy marriage, those conversations are probably going to happen because you care about your spouse and you you care how they feel and, 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 and their medical and physical condition and all of those things. These conversations are very, very important. But Christians should be people who are characterized by habitually saying yes, to their spouses. It seems rare that a couple's desire for sexual intimacy is the same. I, I, in fact, I would think it's probably a very rare thing in the average marriage for a husband's and, and, and wife's desire to be the same at the same time, all throughout their marriage. And so the question of frequency comes, and I know as a pastor that I've sat down with couples and it comes up because that, that's where people are actually living How often should married couples have sex? And I think the right question is probably actually something like this. How often does my spouse desire sexual intimacy in order to remain sexually satisfied? And I would submit that that's the answer that you should be looking for because God wants you to satisfy your spouse. And so maybe it would just be helpful for you and your spouse to sit down and ask each other those questions. How often do you think that we would need to have sex for you to to be sexually satisfied and remain that way, even to the point of full and overflowing? What a loving question that could be asked both directions. Finally, a fifth expectation. God expects you to stop defrauding your spouse of sexual intimacy if that's what's happening. Verse 5 begins, do do not deprive one another. The the New American Standard says, stop depriving one another. And again, that that seems to be what was going on in Corinth, that this was actually happening. And then on the flip side, as we saw a few weeks ago, somehow there are men going to prostitutes justifying their right to do this. Stop depriving one another. The word deprive is used elsewhere of robbery, of theft and defrauding. Withholding yourself sexually from your spouse according to this verse is actually an act of fraud. Think about what Paul just said and even think about how the logic would unfold with what Paul is saying. We would also we would all say, yes, you know what? It is absolutely it is definitely cheating on your spouse if you go out and engage in some kind of extramarital affair. That is cheating. That is wrong. God hates that. But you know what? It's also cheating on your spouse to deprive him or her of sexual intimacy. That is cheating too. God offers one exception to the ongoing sexual relationships of husband and wife and marriage, but that exception comes with a condition. Look at verse 5 again. He says, Do not deprive one another Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If a married couple were to abstain from sexual intimacy, God says that three conditions would need to be met. First, it's a mutual agreement. Both parties would consent to it. And second, it's for a limited time. Both parties would need to agree on a limited period of time that they would abstain. And you get the idea that that Paul's not recommending that that period of abstinence should be for very long. He says a limited time. And third, it's for a spiritual purpose. Paul mentions so that you might devote yourselves to prayer. Perhaps a couple could abstain for some other spiritual purpose other than prayer. I'm not sure that Paul is necessarily intending to limit it just to prayer, per se. But you look at the exception. It's a pretty narrow exception that God gives to married couples. He offers one condition with, or one exception with conditions, and that one exception also comes with a warning. Look at the second half there of verse five. He mentions that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. If a couple agrees to abstain from sex for a limited time because of some spiritual purpose. And Paul is acknowledging that, you know, maybe that could be really beneficial in a marriage for some reason. If they do that, then they should plan to come to back together sexually right away. Why? Well, Paul mentions two things. And at the end of the verse, he mentions because of your lack of self control. Don't assume that you or your spouse has self control. You say, well, well, maybe I should be able to assume that I do and my spouse does. Well, it's interesting because it seems actually that God assumes the opposite of both of you. That you and your spouse tend to lack self-control. And Satan wants to seize on that lack. And and that doesn't mean that you're off the hook and you don't need to exercise self-control if you don't feel like you're you're being as satisfied as, as you might desire. But Satan really does, the, the this next thing that's brought up here so that Satan may not tempt you, you don't want to put yourself or your spouse at Satan's disposal. We know what he's like. He's a roaring lion and he's seeking someone to devour. God offers one exception and that exception also comes with a concession. The exception made in verse 5 is not something that you necessarily need to do. Abstaining in marriage is not commanded. Look at verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. And I would understand Paul to be referring back to just immediately to the previous verses there. Don't think that because Paul said that you could take a break in your marriage from sexual intimacy that you should. God's not commanding that, that you should do that. Abstaining in marriage is not inherently spiritual. Verse 7 says, uh, Paul writes there, "I, I wish that all were as myself am. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul seems to be referring to the fact that he was single and he enjoyed his singleness. Paul may have actually been married at some point. But at this point, as of writing, he's single, maybe he's a widower, we don't exactly know. But he appears to be enjoying his singleness, and, and probably because, specifically, he recognized where that put him as, as a gospel witness, and how that freed him up. He didn't have a wife, he didn't have kids, and that freed him up in amazing, in amazing ways to uh, advance the gospel. And you get the idea that Paul is standing there saying, this has been amazing and I wish everybody could have the, this, this freedom to advance the gospel that, that I have in my setting like this. I wish you could all have this experience. It's great. However, he recognizes that though he enjoys his single celibate life, it's not any more spiritual than the married person's life where that person is sacrificially giving of their to their spouse sexually. The point, abstaining in your marriage is, is not inherently spiritual as the Corinthians may have thought. God expects you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy. And stop defrauding your spouse of that if you are. Your spouse shouldn't have to beg or feel like they're begging you for sex, nor should they feel guilty for asking. And I also want to mention that you and your spouse may have some major, major Intimacy killers on the spiritual front of a spiritual nature that need dealt with. For example, maybe there's really no sex or very little of that in your marriage because what there is in your marriage is actually a lot of bitterness. Or maybe there's been unrepentant sin or unforgiven sin. And and the list could go on and on of, of spiritual dynamics and you need to address whatever it is that is at the root of your problem. And maybe actually there are, there are major spiritual things that you and your spouse need to work through. And God wants you to do that. And if I can be of any assistance to you as you try to deal with the root of whatever is going on in, in your personal life, in, in your marriage, that may be standing in the way of, of something practical like what's going on in this passage, If I can be of any assistance in helping you with what's going on spiritually in your marriage, I would love to help you do that. And I also want to mention that you may be be in a very, very complicated scenario that this text doesn't seem to account for. Paul is basically stating the norm and the rule. He can't address every little scenario uh, as he writes this passage, and, and nor can I publicly in this time. But you may be in a very, very complicated scenario that this text does not seem to account for. And you may be dealing with some very, very difficult things. There, there could be people here, and in your past, there are things like abuse. Or maybe you're in a marriage where your spouse is addicted to pornography, and that's creating a, a very uh, painful and challenging dynamic. And there are physical things, there are medical challenges. I mean, there are just so many things where you may look at your scenario and go, I just, I, I'm hearing this passage, I just feel like what's going on in my life is so much more complicated than, 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 than what I'm reading here. And as I mentioned, I don't have the time to address every possible situation publicly. But if I can help you sort through what it looks like for you to please God in your scenario and and keep growing as you pursue him, I would absolutely love to help you in that way, if I could. And one final thing, as we wrap up, uh, that you may have not actually thought about from this text. In in fact, I, I wonder if perhaps you could walk away with the opposite opinion. But the Bible actually elevates women and protects them in a way that the world's view of sex does not. Think about this. Everything that God says here in this passage is of a mutual nature. Everything he says to the man, he says to the woman. Everything. He says the exact same same thing to the wife as he says to the husband in every verse. And what he's saying is that a husband has just as much obligation to his wife as she does to him. He's supposed to be just as exclusively committed to her sexually as she is supposed to be to him. Maybe that doesn't sound all that revolutionary to you. I guarantee you at the time in which Paul wrote, it was. And then for Paul to as well bring up that she has just as many sexual rights as he does. She has authority over his body? In the ancient world, that would have been shocking. In the ancient world, it would have been, no, she has absolutely no authority over anything. That thought would have been unthinkable in the ancient world. And then further, that she has to be consulted and must agree if they're not going to have sex for a time. Again, think about how revolutionary this would have been in Paul's day. In Paul's day, what was actually very common is is men would take a wife to bear them children. And that's basically ended up being the extent of that relationship. And then those men would often go out for their own pleasure and satisfaction elsewhere. This text highlights God's good plan for marriage and for intimacy. I think we all want to look at it and we all want to trust God's plan. We also want to look at this text within the bigger picture of what else God has said about marriage and the sexual relationship within marriage. God wants you to follow his plan for sexual intimacy. I hope by God's grace that he will bless you as you seek to follow him and please him in this regard. Would you bow with me at this?